0: Hello, and welcome to Venture Stories from Village Global. I'm Anne Duane, co-founder and partner, joined by Lucas Bagno, investor here at Village Global. Today, we welcome Io Imadula, the SVP of product at Carbon Health, with the mission of making care more accessible to all. Prior to Carbon, Io was founding product manager on the banking team for Cash App at Square, co-creating the cash card to be one of the fastest-growing card programs in history. Before Cash App, I.O. co-founded HipMob, which was acquired by Converse Social. He's an active angel investor and a big thinker on product in both fintech and healthcare. Without further ado, welcome, I.O.
1: Thank you for having me. Really glad to be here.
0: Wonderful. Well, uh, just to kick us off, can you tell us about your role at Cash App and what you did there? And then maybe we'll put that in the context of your decision to move from fintech to healthcare.
1: Yeah, Absolutely so i was at cash app for almost six years and while i was there i worked on a variety of things i was actually uh hired to build cash apps api strategy um which i don't know if you, you all remember uh snap cash, like snapchat's like money transfer thing that was that was built on on cash app and uh then eventually i ended up starting and running the banking group at cash app so that that was the portfolio including the cash card uh, bank accounts, direct deposit, uh, everything from our banking relationships to our processor relationships to card manufacturers. I spent about a month in aggregate in factories getting like plastics made and so on. And I left in late two thousand nineteen, and then right at the start of the pandemic, uh, I was lucky enough to join Carbon Health um, to run the product team, uh, which at the time was me, <laughs> um, or at the time was Aaron, the CEO, who who you know, said, Hey, you're a product manager now. It was a little bit before I think the world really understood what the pandemic was going to be. And I, I don't even think we did actually. And then, man, it fe- that feels like so long ago now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we still don't really know. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. can, can, can you um, talk a, a little bit um, more about what was the decision like for you to move from FinTech where you'd spent years and, and been very successful to enter a new sector?
1: So I wish I could give like a really grand, satisfying answer, but I don't have one. The All the answers I have are like kind of personal and and minute. So in no particular order, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, this guy named Russ Fradden, who's, who, now, who is on the board at Carbon Health and now works at Carbon. And he made this comment to me like in early 2019, where he was like, oh, you know, if you'd been in Silicon Valley for the last 20-ish years... You could kind of have been successful just doing like the average thing, like, you know, you worked at Google and then you worked at Facebook, and then you invested in your friends along the way. Um, and then you you just did that for a while and like you did pretty well. And there's, you know, dozens of those companies. But, you know, if you really think about what software has touched so far, it hasn't even touched the markets with these gigantic tamps. Like, and and you know, there's kind of seven or eight of them. It's like construction logistics. Healthcare, fintech, natural resources and mining space. <laughs> I'm sure there are others. Energy. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, right. Yeah.
1: And his his point was that these are like heavily regulated spaces. Uh, the the uh, you know prototypical junior at Stanford isn't thinking about doing those things. <laughs> and there's there's a lot of value on the line and they touch everybody. And it got me thinking, I'd spent a bunch of time in, in financial services and one, one insight for me early on at Cash App was just the willingness and ability to engage with the subject matter. And I, I would say even now, there are people at Carbon who are much better at this than me from, from the carbon, from the healthcare perspective, and I'll describe why in a second. But like a lot of people are not really willing to engage with when they're in a regulated space with the core subject matter of like, hey, there's there's a guardrail here. And what does it really mean? Like people very rarely will actually look at the guardrail and, and, and form an opinion themselves. And really, th- that's not to say like, like, if you work in a regulated space, you should really depend on your lawyers. But you should also be like over time, building up your first principles knowledge base of what these regulatory constraints mean. And so that conversation plus that insight from Cash App kind of got me to think, oh, you know what? I Actually, I want to spend more time in regulated spaces. I could go do fintech. I could go do more fintech but you know for for 10 years leading up to being a cash app i'd wanted to build a bank and then i was a cash app and i built a bank and there, there were many other things that i thought of like many ideas that i had that i've subsequently written about and invest in companies doing those things and they were just weren't like i wasn't like i want to spend the next decade doing this and so and then i met aaron at, at carbon and one of the most interesting things about us as a company is there just really isn't much that we're not willing to do, you know. You you hear the comment "stay in your lane." We just don't have a lane. Like we'll just eventually, <laughs> eventually we will touch everything, and that doesn't mean we will do everything. Like obviously, healthcare is an ecosystem business. We will partner with people and so on. But that willingness to question every assumption was just incredibly appealing. And I think, and you know, I would say two more reasons. One thing that was really compelling about Aaron as a founder is he really described problems in a way that made the solution seem obvious and it was a quality that i hadn't realized existed till i met him Um, and so and then i'd say the last thing is there were just some ways that i wanted to try and some muscles i wanted to flex and things i want to learn and ways that i want to try building a team that i just didn't get the chance to at cash app and so it it was an interesting um like opportunity and then both my parents are doctors i've had a bunch of of you know wide spectrum of interactions with the healthcare industry. And the opportunity to to change it for the better is just like just couldn't pass up.
2: And I maybe it would be worthwhile to maybe just spend about 30 seconds describing what it is that Carbon Health does and how is it
1: unique? Yeah. So the easiest way to describe it is we, we call ourselves an omnichannel healthcare company. Omnichannel meaning we meet the patient wherever they are. And the, the easiest way to think about what we do is we control like carbon health the company has doctors that works for it owns clinics and owns the entire technology stack and that's just a, a in in healthcare that's like fairly rare i think there there are a few full stack companies doing really high value care like musculoskeletal cancer etc and then there's there are a lot of you know highly operational companies that buy software off the shelf but finding a company that has high quality clinical discipline, high quality technical discipline, and high quality operational discipline in the same company. Uh, that's just pretty rare. And that is focused on the mass market. Right. So, so maybe let me just, let me maybe paint the picture. So five years from now, we'll have a thousand clinics in every state. We'll have a thousand clinics, we'll be in all 50 states, and you will be able to walk into a clinic in Oklahoma, or two days later, walk into a clinic in in Albany. And the system will know about you, will have context on all the care you've received and be able to like treat you the same. And we'll, we'll give you the same high quality of care regardless of, of where in the system you are. And
0: can I ask a clarifying question on that? Are you a yeah. new interface layer on top of the healthcare infrastructure that exists today or is it replacing some elements?
1: It's replacing a lot of elements. Uh, like I'll put it this way. Like we have, I think now a hundred carbon clinics that are like carbon and the employees work for us. The technology that they use to, to chart your case, we built it ourselves. Uh, the technology that sends the claims to the to the insurer, we built it ourselves. The physical design of the clinic are ours. The doctors work for Carbon. That's amazing. And I something
2: we've discussed privately in the past that sort of actually sparked this conversation that we're that we're having today is that healthcare today seems in some ways like fintech five years ago, which is something yeah. I've, I've heard you say. Why do you, wh- what do you mean by that? And, and what analogies can you draw based on your experience?
1: Yeah, so, so I think the first thing I'll say about that is, you know, everyone's the hero in their own story. So like, and I'm no different from anybody else. So obviously I'm viewing this stuff through a certain lens. There was a dynamic in financial services. Like when we started working on the cash card in 2015, a lot of the infrastructure that exists today in FinTech didn't exist. So like, like Marketo was kind of the state of the art, unit didn't exist. Lithic didn't exist. Synapse didn't exist. Alloy, I think was barely getting started. Persona didn't exist. Like all these things were just that you would use to build a modern bank didn't exist. So a lot of them we like cobbled together or built from scratch. I think healthcare is similar in that if you wanted to rebuild Kaiser today, the, the building blocks are only just coming online. Like I talked to a founder, maybe um a couple of days ago that's building a new prescriptions routing layer to to rival sure scripts that's like modern and rest api based and um i've talked to a founder who's building new insurance infrastructure so that you can like launch a new oscar without having to build all the all the uh, underlying pieces yourself um the, the, to me the similarities are and this is the thing that i really understand so like i don't have a clinical background so there's just clinical stuff that i don't get that's just true but the technical infrastructure required to operate a business, like a lot of the building blocks are just starting to come online now. And that's, that's what I think is interesting. And I think there's, there's also a, there are like new things. There's like, you know, I'm going to use such a gross analogy, but if you think of, you think of like FinTech as, as sort of new technology doing the same actions in, in financial services. So that's like, you know, there are, there are credit cards and JP Morgan has them and Chime has them. And there are. You know bank accounts and JPMorgan morgan has them and chime has them and then there's like a whole new set of technologies in crypto that are um new ways to do old things and then new ways to do some new things and i think one analog that i've that the analog in my mind in healthcare is like one is there are these new tools around like personalized medicine so this this would be concepts like sensor-driven care you can now slap a continuous blood glucose monitor on your body and it will like track your blood glucose continuously you and, and those companies are building things to do to, um, are building similar technologies for new analytes. So like ketones, stress, like hormone levels, et cetera, et cetera, that can fundamentally change the kind, the way that a provider can like understand what's happening with a patient and change decisions they can make for that patient for the better. So for me, at least a lot of the similarities come from This new infrastructure layer is just coming online and founders are ambitious enough to tackle it. And then these new technologies that can also change the way we deliver care.
0: Question for the product manager in you. You're making probably build versus buy decisions all the time. And in a rapidly evolving ecosystem, how do you think about that?
1: Oh, yeah. I I think there are two lenses. One is, is it strategic for us? And if it is, then we have to own it. And then is if it's not strategic for us, then the build versus buy question is, does something exist that actually solves the problem the way that we want it to be solved? And if yes, we're totally willing to buy it. And if not, then we probably have to build it.
0: Yeah, good. Good answer. You talked before about regulation being a factor in fintech. How have you seen regulation in fintech or
1: in, in healthcare? Sorry. So I think a lot of the times the regulation itself isn't the thing isn't the the problem or the stumbling block, the real stumbling block is the practitioners and and operators perspective on the regulation or their perception of the regulation. So a lot of times the roadblocks we hit aren't that like we read some law, and the law said we couldn't do x. Um, A lot of the times, it's somebody had been doing something a certain way in their old, like previously in their career, and they, they kind of have a belief, like the path of least resistance for them is to just continue to do it that way, continue to do it that way. So I'll give like a really like really simple example that, you know, may, maybe you'll get it, maybe you won't, but it like will illustrate the point. When you go visit, like the way healthcare is regulated in the United States is at the state level. So if you go do a virtual visit with a provider, it's like really, really, if you think about it, so like backwards. <laughs> If you go do a virtual visit, like a video visit with a doctor in the U.S., they have to be licensed in the state um, that you are in. <laughs> and in the in clinic context, you never have to worry about that, right? Or you rarely have to worry about that because the provider has to be in order for the, for the healthcare company to not take on liability. That provider has to be in, like licensed in the state. Um, one process that lives on from the in-person context is when you walk into a clinic they say hey give me your id and your insurance card and then they take your id and insurance card and they take copies of it they give it back to you right now in the video context how do you verify what state the patient is in right and so the default answer of a lot of operators would be like hey show me your id right another answer would be hey let's just check this person's ip address a third answer might be let's check their geo and a fourth answer might be, let's, if, if they previously had a visit with us, let's just see them. And then now, now it's just liability question. And so we, we like early on at Carbon, we had this argument about this ID thing because just a few, like the default discussion was, hey, let's just use the flow that we know that works in the clinic. And then as we've sort of dug deeper, it's kind of like, we don't actually need that. And on on the margin, it probably doesn't matter, right? But For us, who when we care about experience, forcing a person to take their wallet out, take their ID, snap it, line up the phone—it's just like, why? (laughs) And so much of the sort of innovation and friction reduction that we did at Cash App was just around these like these points of if you go the path the path of least resistance for us is not actually the best experience for the customer. And in healthcare, I'm I'm just you know I've given you that example, but there's you know. At Carbon, literally hundreds of things like that where, we're, where we just have to pause, question, pull back, and then sort of figure out if we can do something original.
2: And Io, if healthcare five years from now doesn't end up being as successful as fintech has been over the last couple of years,
1: what do you think could have gone wrong? Oh, good question. <laughs> it, I think it depends on what you mean by success. So one of our clinicians makes this comment uh, he says in like 100% of people will be consumers of healthcare in their lifetimes. And so if by successful, what you mean is digital health doesn't start to consume a larger portion of care and market share versus, versus incumbents. The reason I think that might happen, honestly, is like, I think it can, it can only be a regulation or under execution. Cause if you, if you look at a lot of the companies that I would say are, are leading in digital health, like, color, carbon health, row, et cetera, um, on the straight direct consumer side, I don't know if you could, like you can make arguments about their mission and their business. I don't think you could really argue about their, their uh, competence and execution quality. Do you know what I mean? So, and then I think they also have an advantage where they just, they don't carry a bunch of legacy costs along the way. So they're, you know, like a company like Row is deploying, they're like, Really strong in mobile consumer acquisition. It's just unlikely that Kaiser will be great at that. For example, my guess is something could happen regulatorily that would clamp down. And even then, I think it would be it would it would be most likely to affect more the digital health players directly because even in what you consider incumbents, they're heavily reliant on software like payers, United Health, Aetna, BCBS, etc. They're they're investing very very heavily in technology to to improve margins, improve care delivery, et etc. So I just I, I think it, it, it's very hard for me to disentangle how like those companies which have to continue to exist, like the payroll must be filled, succeed, and the and the the upstarts don't. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it's so interesting, and and also there's been some consolidation on the digital side. Right, Roe has made a couple acquisitions, yeah, which yeah. suggests that maybe the digital stack. Pulls together or something. I don't know.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Actually, actually, let
1: me let me add one more thing. So, I think a thing that is true is capitalization of these businesses is complex because at at heart, the atomic unit of value that a healthcare company provides is a patient and provider interacting around that patient's health. It's not software, and so I think like the VC model struggles to capitalize businesses that. Where their top unit value is is healthcare, and I think we've we've done a good job because like Aaron's an amazing founder, and and we have like a really strong bench around him. But you know, a lot of the times I, I look at startups that are looking at care delivery, and the thing that I think is, you you just literally are scaling humans' time, <laughs> and it's not as though like none of the innovations that you look at around care unlock more human more people becoming doctors every year. <laughs> like that number is still just like growing at a certain rate, it's not going to inflect. And so I think there's also some risk there. If, if some of these new models um, around personalization and sensory driven care don't pan out, like I, I should be just transparent that I think that will, you know, it might be, it might be a 10-year thing instead of a five-year thing, for example.
0: Right. Well, it's interesting. A lot of software businesses do not have a third-party payer in the loop either, yeah, exactly. Right? And that's, yeah. So it's yeah. An extra complexity to, I guess, prove the value the time. But yeah. uh, switching topics a bit, you've talked before about your approach to hiring and how your secret to hiring is hiring former founders. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. I would say it's, it's so, so when I mentioned earlier about like when I left Cash App, uh, this was one of the things that I really was interested in trying because I went through the cycle where um, I came out of YC. I had a lot of friends whose their their companies had ended. Either they'd sold it or they'd they'd wound it down and then they were missionless. So they were just wandering around like trying to figure out what to do next. And um I, I watched a couple of them like bounce against these big companies, like they'd go to, you know, Amazon and go to Facebook and they have a grab bag of skills that that unless you're thoughtful about it, you don't know how to apply. And and if they have any kind of non-traditional background, they're not like Stanford, Harvard, whatever even getting successfully through recruiting screens is challenging. And so to me I was like some and and actually here's what's funny. Some of these people have gone on to like start companies that are incredibly successful now since. <laughs> and it 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 just was crazy to me that companies haven't figured out how to how to harness this kind of talent. And so I don't think it's specifically about hiring founders even though that's one manifestation. I think it's about figuring out how to hire and retain talent. That the average company doesn't really know how to cater to, and so founders are founders are a good one because they're obvious in Silicon Valley, likes them. But I think the same is true of like parents who've been out of the workforce for a while, who yep. because a, a lot of the times you find that there are these really really talented, really really driven people who they're out of the workforce for a reason that has nothing to do with their performance or execution quality, and you have to create environments where they can thrive. And so, can we
0: dig into that? So, what questions might you ask in an interview, and/or what conditions, as you were saying, um, in the environment do you create for them?
1: Yeah. So, so, well, I'll focus on the founder thing, and then I'll focus on like you know moms who've not a workforce for a second. So, for founders, and and this is actually my general interview process, but for founders it like works really really well. Usually, there are public artifacts of their work that you can try. <laughs> so, like I can literally like play with their apps <laughs> and be like, "Hey, how did you decide this?" Right. And so you don't need to. You you removed the question from the table of do they know how to perspective and are they kind. And the introspection is for, it's basically trying to ensure that they can learn fast. And then the are they kind is for, you, just like I have a real hard time with people who are not nice, for lack of a better like I I struggle with assholes, and Uh-oh, I think
0: Lucas we're in trouble. <laughs>
1: And I think if you want to build an organization where people can take risk, they have to know that they're not going to get shot at when things don't work out. So, like, really, those are the 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 sort of parameters. And then I think I I think Cash has now done this, but this is a thing that I was um, really interested in: is building. And I think particularly in the pandemic, this is interesting. And we're 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 investigating this now. at Carbon, but building programs that allow parents who've been out of the workforce, primarily moms for a few years land back in a job and like and it's not the same as i was at this company on friday and then i left and i started at carbon on monday there's you have to create like something different for them and so for that i don't actually yet know what the answer is we're just exploring what it is but i think i think there's something around having good champions inside the organization for those things having i want to say extensive training but it's not really a skills thing it's an onboarding thing for like, hey, here's how this organization works. Here are the ways that you might have to think about these things that are that like you might not be used to. And then for for more technical roles, there is training and tools because those things like the, the types of work that engineers and data scientists and designers do, those the tools they use like flip relatively free.
0: That's exciting. I mean, it sounds like you could unlock just amazing
1: uh, talent from that those approaches. I hope so. I I, I really think this is it's one of the craziest things that still can value to me people with kids they just care more about their kids than their job <laughs> on average and so like making it really easy for them to do the right thing by their families and still work for you I think you'll build like an insane amount of loyalty I don't know if that's true I just think it is <laughs> and you know if, if we have this conversation in a year I'll be able to tell you <laughs>
2: <laughs> awesome
1: uh well so so I, I wanted to ask you one question I owe. Uh,
2: So you've worked directly with uh, what's arguably one of the best tech founders of the last 10 years, uh, Aaron Bali. What have you learned most from him, uh, specifically on the subject of hiring?
1: I don't know if the thing that I've learned the most from him is a hiring thing, actually. There's a thing I didn't really appreciate about, about startups with multiple technical founders, which is they have access to a feedback loop that's really, really hard to match. So like, you know, the... All of carbon runs on our own ehr which we call the provider app that like aaron built and so much as and it's an ehr just like an insanely complicated piece of software like outside of slack what other thing do you think people use every day for 10 hours a day and that's like what our providers are doing i didn't realize until i i probably had been here 18 months as and in 18 months i'm just sort of peeling back the layers of the onion of what this app is and in that process realizing that there's so many things that we have now that were just some experiment he had and he built over a weekend five years ago. (laughs) And that thing is just really like, look, I, you know, I think I'm a pretty smart guy and I'm pretty good at stuff, but I think the the output you would get with me and a strong technical co-founder versus two strong technical co-founders working on something actually is like really, really different. Amazing.
0: And let's wrap with um, one last question. So you're an operator angel. How do you think about making time for angel investing, both the time to meet and decide about backing founders, and then the time to support founders? You back.
1: Yeah. So I I think two things. Like one is just recognizing that in practice, I'm not really a capital provider. So like for the most part, whether or not I wrote an angel a check would make a difference. Uh, wrote a company check would make a difference to like, whether they were successful or not actually, just because they're not like, I'm not the anchor. I'm not the round lead, do you know what I mean? Like my, my check size isn't large enough for, for that to be true. And so I try to be like pretty low maintenance. <laughs> and so that's like one, two, I think what a company needs from you just changes depending on the stage and like depending on what the company is going through. So for a lot of stuff that I do in FinTech, I'll use FinTech and everything else as like two examples. A lot of stuff I do in fintech, I'm useful because I've thought about these problems before, often longer than the founder has, and so I can like help them see around corners. And my network will be useful to them. And sometimes when when necessary, we get like really technical, and I'll look at a database table and, and tell them how to think about certain things. For a lot of other stuff I, I do, like I've invested in a couple of space companies. I actually just don't know anything about space. So for me, they're bringing me along for the ride, <laughs> and like I'm I'm there to learn and. In in all cases, like my evaluation process is, I guess I have a few, but I try to be decisive, and just either commit or get out of the way, uh, just to not waste their time up front. And then downstream, when I'm involved, you know, I, I joke with a friend of mine that angel investments at the pre-seed stage are like a really expensive newsletter, where you get a letter from the front lines once a month, from a person who's really like it doing the hand-to-hand combat. And then there is an option in there if the company does well that like you might make some money and when i because i have that mindset like mostly what i try to do is say is where like where i don't understand something probably other people on your cap table also don't so i ask about it um and when i think you're not thinking about something i try to just force it into your consciousness and you might decide hey i've thought about that please leave me alone which is also fine but you know, th- those are like what I think of as my responsibility. And I try to make it like pretty, pretty lightweight and high level. Super.
0: Oh, uh, well, Ayo, thank you so much for making time today and uh, sharing your wisdom and, and growth ideas with, um, with our audience. And we really look forward to staying in touch and tracking your progress.
1: I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening.
2: Check us out at villageglobal.vc, where you can find links and other information
1: about today's episode.